it was kind of magical, I think. It was almost as good as the circus. You know, okay, when you're 70, you get to see the elephants. And when you're 10, you get to be two rows away from four guys drunk on Genesee cream ale. Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. I'm the host of the podcast and producer, MC of No Name and a Bag O' Chips, New York City's longest running comedy variety show. Thanks for coming in to play with us today. Man, uh, make yourself home, sit down, grab a cool beverage from the fridge. You know, just sit down, get comfortable. The voice you heard up front was that of storyteller, and I have to say, raconteur, Jennifer Glick. She's our guest today. She's an interesting person, and, and she, prior to pandemic, had been No Name's official storyteller in residence. We haven't really ramped up the regularity of shows again, but she's actually made a few appearances with us since we started to do shows again. It's always good to have her around. We'll get to that in a little bit. I hope everyone's enjoying their summer. I hope you're having a good time uh, doing whatever you're doing or not doing anything, if that's your choice. Hoping to get away a little bit this summer myself. Haven't done that really since pandemic. You know, it's something I realized I am such a New Yorker. Even when I go to other places, I'm always a New Yorker in other places. There's no artifice of trying to blend in or become one of the locals or whatever, I'm still absolutely identifiably New York by my behavior. When I was younger, when I was much younger, went to California and I had tons of time to go exploring and roaming around. And my sister busted my chops when we got back to New York and I took all these pictures of things that like, they're not tourist pictures. It's just like, hey, this is weird. Like I took a picture of Bob's Big Boy, the giant statue of the guy holding the giant hamburger or whatever. Just, I had never seen one of those before. Um, one of my favorite pictures was of a, a small motel that had like a hand-operated marquee. Like, you know, you put the letters on the marquee by hand. The marquee said, nice rooms. I'm not joking. I think that was one of the most hilarious things I had ever seen in my life. Certainly took a little luster off of my vision of California. When I went to Milwaukee a a few years ago, my last night in Milwaukee, I did the sort of thing a New Yorker does. What did I do? Did I go to a fancy restaurant? No. Did I check out, you know, cultural things? No, I I found an 85-year-old movie theater that was screening the latest Woody Allen film. Don't judge me. It was just a New York thing, not a Woody thing. I thought, well, you know, what does a New Yorker do on their last night in Wisconsin? Yeah, go see a film by a New York filmmaker. Had it been Martin Scorsese, had it been Spike Lee, had it been Ed Burns, maybe, I would have gone. But I I do love going to other places and always remaining true to my New Yorker self. I think they're sometimes confused when folks find I'm from New York and I seem to be nice I can be. I'm not in the city anymore. Anyway, I love New York. I love you guys. And I love our sponsor. So we'll get to the conversation with Jennifer Glick in just a minute. But first, get away to Green Bay. Get away to Green Bay. Yes, that's right. The historic Astor House bed and breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin where your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber, will greet you and make you feel at home in any of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have their own bath, and some of which even have a jacuzzi. Now, bed and breakfast. This is the bed and breakfast. You ever go to a bed and breakfast and think, I'd rather not have the breakfast? 
Or maybe you wake up and there was almost no breakfast and it's all gone by the time you got there. Or you do get there and there's like a couple of strips of bacon, maybe one or two turkey sausages, a box of half-eaten cereal, and some questionable fruit. That will never happen to you at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, where nothing is more majestic than the fresh, homemade, yummy, scrumptious. Their breakfasts are amazing and are worth the trip alone. And after breakfast, if you want to know what's going on in Green Bay, what's fun to do, what restaurants do you need to check out, well, ask Tom and Linda. They know everything. They're totally connected there, and they will see to it that you have a blast every second you are up there. So, what do you want to do? You want to make some reservations? You got some questions? Check them out online. Go to www.astorhouse.com. That is Astorhouse, A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Escape to Green Bay today. Thanks for taking the time to come play. How's your summer going? up and down i finally got covid because i spent a week in florida i three years in this filthy filthy city surrounded by so many other human beings didn't get touched i go to florida for one week and i come home with covid um, did you at least have a good time while you were there we I, I had fun on the beach and got a horrible sunburn so i'm probably not that was the first time i've ever been to florida i'm probably i'd go back to the beach but yeah, thanks to Santa's. You can keep it. So that was your first time there? My very first time. I am the last Jew in America that's never been to Florida. And I just, <laughs> I, I broke my Florida cherry there. So, so yeah. did you feel like you were just checking something off the list? I think I was. I think I really was. I mean, I knew I'd get there at some point. I've, I've been mildly curious about Miami and Key West. I went to this place called Sanibel Island that got the shit kicked out of it nine months ago in a hurricane, and um, it's not quite there yet. It just made me wonder, why do you people want to be... I mean, the beach is swell. Mm-hmm. The beach is super-duper swell, but that sun is merciless. That weather is humid. I mean, it was June, so maybe I, I did not pick my moment here, but, like, okay, not in the middle of summer, not hurricane season, so what are you left with? January? Okay, let's go to Florida in January. Okay, I guess that's why people go to Florida in January. I went to the Ringling Museum. And in Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey? Yep. That was great. I loved that. They have old posters and they have the history of circus performing. They have Mr. Ringling's train car restored. And it reminded me so much of the television show Wild Wild West. Robert Conrad, the terrible mm-hmm. movie with Will Smith, but, you know, the completely decked out train car. That was a, just a sight to see. Also, within the Ringling Brothers Museum, there was the scale model of a circus that was done by this gentleman. I Probably he finished it in 2005, I think. And it was every part of the circus, the tent where they ate, the dressing room tent, the animals. Wow. Some gentleman felt like, oh, that's what I need to do with my life right now is make <laughs> a complete and total replica of the circus. It yeah. kind of matches the vibe of the circus. I mean, it's, it's whatever you do in the circus is very extreme. You know, it's a very specific thing. So this guy was just like, well, I'm going to do a very specific thing to honor the circus. Yeah, I get it. First time I ever saw the Ringling Brothers Circus, I think I was like seven years old, and I thought it was the greatest 
thing I ever had any access to. All the beautiful ladies up the gigantic ropes spinning because they had clamped something in their teeth and, and the trapeze people and the elephants and the clowns and just that's worthy of a museum for me. No okay. argument there. Yeah, you know. You remember your your first circus? I mean, where, where did you see you? Could you're not a native New Yorker? No, right? I am not. So. I was born in Rochester, New York, and I saw my first Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus in the Rochester War Memorial Auditorium, and I took a very deliberate way of pronouncing that because truly Rochesterian, you would say, where memorial? Understood. And you, you have to hit your teens before you know what they're actually referring to or how it's spelled or something? No, it was always the war memorial. Now we're going to go see Cheap Trick at the war memorial, which I also did too. So that, 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 that sounds like a place you would go see Cheap Trick. Absolutely not. And did you see Cheap Trick there? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, hell yeah. I think I was like 13 and it was back in the day when at concerts they had what they called the chill-out room, so if you were having a real heavy trip, man, you could go, like, lie down if it got too intense. or what. Back in the day when, like, oh, well, we know you're all going to take drugs and we know it's illegal, but let's be helpful. Let's be helpful and make sure, you know, you don't put out an eye. Make sure you don't do that. This shows how unversed in concert culture I am. This never occurred to me as a thing that was out there. I mean, I've... I would have imagined something like that at, say, Woodstock or something, but at the War Memorial. I know I totally did that wrong, but I wanted to at least put an effort into that. So at the War Memorial, they had the freak-out rooms, the chill-out rooms. They had the freak-out room for the rock concerts. They had a minor league hockey team, the Rochester Americans, also referred to as the Amherst. And my mom thought it would be, like, fun Let's go to a hockey game. Let's take the kids to the hockey game. And we got some nosebleed seats. I was about 10 years old. It was like the movie Slapshot. They were drunk and beating the hell out of each other. And we were like the next. You, you mean in the stands? On the ice, in the stands, in the lobby. It was just all happening. And I don't think my poor mom bargained for that. The goalie was missing three teeth and wasn't wearing a mask and wasn't wearing a helmet. And oh, had this no long, stringy, ugly, blonde hair. And it was just, oh, this is interesting. And my mother was like, we are leaving now. It was kind of magical, I think. It was almost as good as the circus. You know, okay, when you're seven, you get to see the elephants. And when you're 10, you get to be two rows away from four guys drunk on Genesee cream ale. This is how we introduce you to the world. Okay, so learn not to be scared of these things. Or at the very least, learn to be aware of them. Learn not to get too involved with them either. I credit my parents a lot for that. But yes, I was born in Rochester, New York, because my dad worked for the Xerox Corporation. And I was born in 1965, and that was back in the day when Xerox owned the universe. Xerox is a verb. Xerox is a noun. Xerox owns the whole shooting match. My dad was working in Chicago, and he was the guy that came to the offices and fixed it when it fell apart. It was this grand corporation. There was room to grow. He and my mom left Chicago, moved to Rochester. He worked for them for a very long time, and, you know, they were... There's this documentary called Bathtubs Over Broadway, all about industrial musicals. I've heard of it. I have this record album. It's a musical about Xerox. Charlie, take it from here. I, it's a family heirloom because my dad went to this meeting with 
like all the associates and the salespeople and they had this musical and they were handing out the albums at the end of the day. It just like they had money to hire people to write a musical about a product that people actually sat and watched it and were entertained by it. That just makes no sense to me. This was this corporation that had everything until about 1975 when it lost its patents. I was going to say, where did it all go wrong? Oh, you know, legislation trying to make things fair. So, hey. Uh, you know, you that's know. what always screws things up. <laughs> So that was around about 1975 and, you know, lost money, cut divisions, people like Rico and Cannon and Conica were coming up with their own version of doing this. And, and my dad knew, like, okay, corporate America is no longer womb to tomb and the future of our family depends on him making a new decision about what he wants to do. And he looked for jobs and that wasn't quite it. And he had a friend who was also feeling the same level of frustration with his career. And they both decided, hey, let's go into business together. Let's bring something someplace where they haven't seen it before. And let's see how that goes. And his business partner was a manager in a, the headquarters of a supermarket in Rochester. You know, he was the head of their bakery division, and they thought, yeah. hey, let's make bagels. Let's make bagels. Let's take them someplace that nobody's ever seen them before. They both had another friend who moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, who just said, come here. It's great. The taxes are low. The schools are good. They want you to be here. The, you know, the people here are making it really easy for you to come relocate. And they're starved for bagels. Very starved for bagels. There was another place in Durham, North Carolina, that I think was called Temp Tea, the people that make the, the whipped cream cheese. And they didn't do anything retail. They did it all wholesale. They did. Nobody had fresh bagels. That was when lenders. And OK, if you've never had a bagel before, lenders is passable. It's like, oh, this is interesting. I could put something on it. I could have this for breakfast. Sure you could, you poor, <laughs> sad, sad thing. And we're very, very sympathetic towards your plight. So they found this guy in Rochester who had a bagel business. And they said, we would like to apprentice and learn how to do this. And they set up a contract. And this guy taught him how to bake and taught him how to work and set him up with a guy named Louie from Brooklyn. That actually kettle. sounds like it should be the name of the business. Louie from Brooklyn. Louie from Brooklyn. Yeah, Louie from Brooklyn who got all the stuff to go to Greensboro to set up the business. And that's why I ended up in North Carolina for nine years. And that, how old are you at this point? Um, we moved there when I was 14 going on 15. I moved there in June of 1980, so I was three months away from being 15. Yeah, it's kind of not the time most people are anxious to be pulling up roots and going to someplace very different. Things hadn't gone real good for me in Rochester, let's just say that. I had some friends in my neighborhood, but the junior high was a little scary, and the mm. high school, I know Michelle Carlo has told stories about race riots and things happening in the Bronx, and I think that sort of moved its way, moved its way north and west across New York State, and they had something at the public high school I was supposed to go to called Fuck the Freshman Friday. You were just going to get the hell beaten out of you for showing up. And if you didn't show up, then they all knew. Oh, right. Yeah. Anything like that. And like, again, since you bring up Michelle, you know, her talking about kill Whitey Day and kill Black yeah. Latino Day. Yeah. You know, that it, it's exactly right. You, 
you there was no point in playing hooky or, or being out sick that day because you're just gonna get your ass beat twice as bad as when you went back the next day. We heard stories: people got shoved into lockers, girls had nair put in their hair, and all kinds of crazy stuff. And my mother, being Jewish, decided that oh no, not my little girl. So I was taken from a junior high that I was kind of iffy about, but I did have some friends, and I w- went straight to this private school. It was a small private school in the late 70s. It was, you know, more open education, smaller classes, more attention. And and the people that went there were either geniuses that public school could do nothing for or behavioral problems that public school could do nothing for. So I was like neither. And I just could not find my way. I just didn't know what I was doing. I was also dealing with people who had a shit ton more money than I did. And and it just kind of like devolved. Did you have a feeling one way about Rochester before you'd gotten to that point? I mean, was it like, did it feel like a good home or just like, uh, well, it's the only thing I know? It's the only thing I know. The weather's wretched. (laughs) Um... I lived in a neighborhood where everybody else went to public school. I went to synagogue in a neighborhood where people went public and private. And I didn't quite feel like, okay, my accident of birth got me here. My mom and dad, you know, got their first house and this is what they could afford. And the neighborhood was changing around us. And I'm not sure it's going to work for me here. I'm just in so many different places. I just, when my dad said, guess what, kids, we're moving to North Carolina to open a bagel business. I was like, sure, why not? No, if he had told me, hey, we're going to Detroit to become migrant farm workers, I would have said, sure, why not? I was ready to do something really different. And it was really different. It was something that really changed me, that really altered the way that I saw the world, that really made me understand that the way that I watching television, going to school and meeting my mom and dad and meeting their friends and like, okay, this is not the only way in the world mm-hmm. things are. Things are vastly different other places and you need to sort of catch up with that. And you may not get it. You may not understand it. It may make you mad and it doesn't matter. You still got to work with it. Things were different. I don't know if they were better. I had felt like, okay, great, I'm in a whole other place that I just don't know if I belong or fit in or whatever. And then, of course, I found Drama Club, (laughs) just like everybody else listening to us, everybody else that ever made their way into Word Up Bookstore to come (laughs) to the No Name in a Bag of Chips show, to come to the Super Storytelling show, to come to any of the various open mics and book shows that I have done since 1997. I mean... You get funneled, you get shifted, you get drawn to something, mm-hmm. and you find a lot of people who have a common experience. So I had this experience like, oh, you know, okay, Drama Club is everything. Drama Club is exactly what I want. It's exactly where I want to be. These are the right people. When- this is the right thing. I will listen to and learn nothing else. I will just stay here. <laughs> Because well, I'm 14, I, okay? That's how it works. Well, see, my question was going to be, were, were you initially drawn by the drama aspect of it, or did you just sample it and find you, you connected with the people there, or did it all just come together? What? I think both. Like, okay, I don't have to explain myself so hard to these folks. I mean, some parts of me I did have to explain, but um, <laughs> other parts... We could just all sit around and start talking about sitcoms and how cool Laverne and Shirley are and what our favorite music was. And it just like, okay, yeah, 
I don't have to claw through the pink and green clad. It was 1980. Preppy right. was a very big thing. And it was a look, a style, a way of being. Also, you are down south. And it sets up a certain hierarchy. Like you do in high school. The people with the little fox embroidered on their short sleeve three button shirt. Their mom's cheap. They got that at JCPenney. Hey, it's right. the alligator that really fucking matters. <laughs> exactly. Woe be unto you for having anything on you except the alligator. Even the polo player. That was a little iffy. I mean, you know, they knew from Izod they were suspicious of Ralph Lauren, which I <laughs> like, okay. And, and it was a new thing, to be fair. It was early 80s. It was new for Ralph Lauren, but oh my God, really? Okay, fine. It was a whole new structure, and I had to figure out where I belonged in it. And the only welcoming place seemed to be drama club, as I was I was not cheerleader material. I wasn't even close. I toyed with that idea for about 15 seconds, and I saw who the cheerleaders really were. And I was like, nope, not me. Just because I come from somewhere else, you know, when I was writing my own team rom-com in my head, like, no, I could just I could go on the cheerleading team, and I... You know, I could fool everybody. They wouldn't know I was a dirtbag from Henrietta. Like, mm, <laughs> no, nah, I knew I was a dirtbag from Henrietta. I wasn't going to do that. I just wasn't. <laughs> also, I'd have to wear pink and green and spray my hair like teenage girls. I'm like, okay, let's talk about boys and music and let's talk about, you know, making out. And like, no, I, there, I remember being on the school bus having two 15-year-old girls debate the merits of a Dorn versus White Rain. And all I could think to myself is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Why are we talking about boys or smoking pot or drinking beer? Or, you, you know, or, if you were really enterprising, you could have set up one of those businesses there. You know, sure. If the I, bagel thing don't work out, then... Distribution of beauty products, I would be a whole other human being right now <laughs> if such a thing came to pass. But yeah, it, it just. So, what, what is Drama Club? Is Drama Club uh, doing scenes and stuff? Are you actually doing like full blown productions or what, what's going on? I elected to take a drama class. You take the drama class, and then that sort of feeds you into whatever productions that that drama teacher is going to be teaching at your high school. And we did some scenes, and we did some one acts for class, and then they always like to do a musical at the end of, end of the year. You know, there was like. Um, you remember your first production? A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I was a protean. I got to do, um, you know, background slapstick type stuff. I wanted to audition for the ingenue and I just, I wasn't quite there. They, you know, they got some pretty blonde girl who was also skinnier. So yeah, that, that oh, yeah. Weirdos, gay <laughs> men, and the fat girls that love them. That's who ends up in drama club, or at least it did for me in the early eighties. Things may be different now. I'm speaking from my own experience. Yeah, we did a funny thing that happened on the way to the forum, and then the next year at school, there was this citywide drama program that pulled from five different high schools. They ran a production of The King and I at the Magnet School, and I got in on that. I played one of the King's Siamese wives, 
because in North Carolina at that moment, and it is vastly different right now, I was one of the few that didn't have to dye her hair to look more Siamese. You know, I was closer to Asian than anybody else in that production. I really, really was. Give, given given the, uh, the pool, all right, you'll do. Yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, yeah, just, okay, sit in the back, sit on your knees. Let's rehearse getting to know you until you just drop dead from, from having to figure out what the lyrics were. Do that, and then, you know, you're in. You're well, in like, at least you didn't have the experience of not one, but two people that I know of who grew up in, in Texas, I believe in different parts of Texas. I was horrified to hear the story from one person. I was multiply horrified to hear it from a second person Did uh, when they were in high school had a departmental production of A Raisin in the Sun without the benefit of any people of color actually being there. And in both cases, it was done in blackface. Oh, my God. I, the, the, so okay. many levels. All right. I'll tell you why that would never happen in Greensboro <laughs> at that time. In, at that time, because it, if any everybody remembers, in 1979, there was this thing called the Greensboro Massacre, that there was a yeah. demonstration of people calling themselves members of the, you know, Communist Workers Party at, at a um, housing project. And I don't remember why or how the demonstration came about, but members of people who claimed to be uh, part of the Ku Klux Klan and the American Nazi Party came and shot at them. And this all happened before we moved, and I was terrified, but I went through with it. You know, I didn't say, no, Dad, we can't go someplace where there are, you know, Nazis and Klan members. And I'm guessing you weren't given a vote on that anyway. No, I was not. They already had the bank loan. We're going. It's done. We're, we're absolutely going. And, and that, and, and my dad and his business partners, oh, they're just blowing it out of proportion because they had the bank loan. They got to get the wives and kids out the door in the moving van. We got to go. We're going. Mm. Actually, the, the thing that affected me a little bit more on, on one of their trips down, I think either late, like 1978, 79, I'm not quite sure. Monty Python's The Life of Brian was playing at a movie theater and it was getting protested. I was going to say that doesn't strike me as a place that would be the most embracing of that film. Um, Greensboro's a funny thing. Greensboro is a big college town. There's like, you know, okay. there's two historically black universities there. There's the University yeah. of North Carolina at Greensboro. There's a Quaker college called... Guilford College, there's another place called Greensboro College. There, you know, the historically black uh, universities are Bennett College for Women and uh, North Carolina Agricultural and Technical. So there's, you have like this university community and then you also have these Republican businessmen communities. So it's, it's a strange little mix. It's a microcosm of America. Guess what? This country is purple. It's not red. It's not blue. So, yeah, Monty Python's Life of Brian is going to come to this market, which it was slated for, and it's going to get protested by Christian people who feel like it's a, you know, terribly offensive portrayal of Jesus Christ. It, to be fair, Life of Brian got protested by Jews. Life of Brian got protested by everybody. 
And the thing that really struck me first is like, okay, not so much we're moving someplace where there's racial unrest. We're moving someplace where they don't like Monty Python. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but we did. So I ended up I ended up in a production of <laughs> The King, King and, and I, I. <laughs> where the understudy for the lead, for Mrs. Anna, would, would sing Getting to Know You, Getting to Know You, Getting to Know All About you <laughs> and it felt like oh everything we're gonna do is gonna be a production of oklahoma this is ridiculous but <laughs> the king and i is portrayed by patsy klein yeah yeah if patsy klein decided to be mrs anna and i'm sure she would have done a great job maybe somebody might have worked on the diction not quite sure actually patsy didn't sing with an accent patsy patsy true. got that you know true. patsy got around it but not this girl my high school was it was 50-50. It was, you know, there were black people, there were white people. It felt like the numbers were even. That had never happened to me in Rochester. That, you know, certainly not in private school, not that there weren't any black students. There were definitely not in the public school where I was districted. So that was a whole new way of seeing and thinking and being and believing con contrary to what I'd already done. And that was a definite learning curve. And, and I made some mistakes along the way. And I'm, let's just say mistakes were made. Nobody died. Let's leave it at that. Even if they did, you've taken care of the evidence. So it's never yeah. going to come to yeah. light. Statute of limitations. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I graduated high school 40 years ago, friends. So, you know, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I did. I did high school, I did citywide, I did high school theater, I did citywide productions, and I wanted to get more parts, and I wanted to do more things, and I was always, you know, stuck in the chorus, because... So, so are you starting to think bigger picture for stuff like this? Yeah, I want, there was this honors class my senior year in theater, where you could, you would go to this magnet school, and the last two periods of the day you would spend in theater class their season was a series of plays then they would get something together for competition that there's a thing called the SETC Southeastern Theater Conference you know there are college divisions and high school divisions and you would do your I think they had like 25 to 30 minute slots and you would do your thing you would get critiqued you would get judged and somebody would earn the bragging rights of like yeah we won regionals let's go to nationals and there's also the NCTC, the North Carolina Theater Conference. You know, you had to get past NCTC to get to SETC. And once you passed SETC, you would go to nationals, wherever that was. And, you know, Minneapolis. Like, it's not Los Angeles or New York. No, it's Minneapolis. <laughs> that they pick right. Minneapolis. Shut up. You're going to Minneapolis. And but okay, we never went to Minneapolis. Yeah, if I was part of this class, I'd get we do like a play. We do, you know, our, our competition piece. We'd, we'd go to the North Carolina conference. And then if we, you know, we got through that, we would go to the Southeastern. And that, that's what happened the year I did it. So you had play, competition, whatever the competition season is. And then closing out the end, we'd had a musical. I wanted in on this class. I got in as a senior. I was primed and ready to be high school theater star. And I would have had I also not been in a class with people who'd been singing and dancing since they were five. <laughs> and I get getting relegated to chorus parts. And it was just mm -hmm. like, yeah, this isn't it. Whatever this is, this isn't it. And I, out of desperation, 
my synagogue was doing Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And we gotten through our play and we gotten through the competition phase. And we did, we won us the North Carolina Theater Conference. And then we got to go to the Southeastern Theater Conference and mm. we got to go to Savannah. And we competed and there were schools there who actually did do musicals. They did, um, we were doing this theater piece that was kind of pasted together from other absurdist theater, a little bit of Eugene Ionesco here and a little bit of Kennedy's Children there. And and we did that. It was cute and all that. They liked it. But there was this one school, I think they were from Dallas, where they did pieces from Working the Musical. It was based on this book by Studs Terkel, or he, it had been on Broadway maybe a year or two before. And like they had sets, they had directors, they came from a town with a lot more money in their school district. We got handed our ass on a silver platter with a sprig of parsley. And, um, you know, and when you're 17, that kind of hurts. But I will say, hey, it kind of helps for the future because that's going to happen more than once, friends. Listen I, up, kids. It's going to happen more than once. I, I understand. I agree because, uh, you know, um, I, I went to City College uh, and spent oh, decades in the theater department there. I didn't agree with everything that they did with the department there, but in terms of uh, helping you develop skills and a lot of things, uh, technically speaking, they were very good. There were some really good teachers there, and you could learn technique and skills and all sorts of stuff years ago now, so I don't know if it's, it's probably changed over the years. But uh, an issue I had, and it didn't affect me, but I saw it really devastate others, they were prepared skills-wise. They were not prepared for what was out there. Yep. And they got flattened because they had no clue as to what the real world of, of theater was like. Yep. You know, yep. and, I, and I, I am a firm believer if I'm ever put in the position of helping to construct a program for somebody make sure if it's not 50-50, it's at least 60-40 or something to, to you know, that they're not blindsided when they go out. And I mean, this is, you know, I'm in New York City, so you wouldn't think that to be a place where people would get blindsided by it, but they absolutely were flattened by it. On my way here to this recording, I was reading New York Times stories about the SAG-AFTRA WGA sites mm -hmm. and what people don't understand about that is that if you choose a creative life at every stage, it's going to be difficult. Whether you're starting, whether you're in the middle of something and you're making enough money to stay in the union, whether you're a superstar, nothing's guaranteed. And that's why these people are on strike. And it's not because, what, Harrison Ford needs another home in Montana? <laughs> no, it's not. It's that so somebody who makes $26,000 a year doing something that they really, really love can be adequately compensated in the future and have health insurance, for God's sake. How hard is that? And, and, and I it, was told that I was we were told this in this theater class, that like 90 percent of actors equity is out of work at any time. That's how it is. And that doesn't even address the issue of how hard it is to get to a level where you can actually be in that. Yeah, and oh, nobody's even talking about how hard it is to get there. Just because you love it, just because you found something that speaks to you, that you want to put all this time and energy into it, there's no guarantee you're going to get what you want out of this. You're going to get something. You will 
decide I want more, I want less, you'll get old. You'll get old and you'll figure out, oh, hey, maybe I do need health insurance. Maybe that's important. <laughs> and you will have to, you'll have to put in the time to come to that decision. You will have to put in the time to do any of this, to yeah. do open mics, to do, God help you bring your shows, to get on the next show, to get to the next place, to get, and, and you keep thinking, well, okay, once I have a Comedy Central special, I'll be okay. <laughs> once I have a Netflix special, I'll be okay. Once I get a television series, whether it's streaming or network, I'll be okay. And some people never get that. And, you know, once I get there, I'll be set. Everything will be fine. No, no, you Some won't. Some people don't get to be a production assistant on the Comedy Central special. No, they don't. <laughs> you know? No, they don't. And you better decide that you do love this and you're willing to put up with this. You know, if you want a career in it, it's going to be difficult. Money's not what you're going to get out of this. So you, you've gone to this competition and... Yep. You get a little dose of the real world. And, yep. Uh, so what's next? Regroup, go back to our little home theater. Let's do Pippin. Because why not? Let's do Pippin. We're doing Pippin, for God's sake. But before we do Pippin, we have to sit. The first Monday that we're back in our theater, that we're you know back in class, we're back in our theater, we sit on the stage in a circle and are directed by our director to each speak about how we felt about what happened in Savannah, what happened in the competition, how we, quite frankly, how we felt about losing. Don't ever ask 17-year-olds how they <laughs> feel about that if you don't want to then midwife them through some sort of emotional catharsis because that's what you're going to get. And that's what everybody was giving. There were a couple of exceptions. There was one guy who was just mad about it. He was the one that went on to actually have a career. He was the one that actually ended up on Broadway. Oh, okay. He was just mad about it, crying. Would we know his name? We wouldn't. Sadly, we wouldn't. And <laughs> because it, that's the, yeah, the, the we, nature of Broadway. Yeah, we would not know his name. It, and, it, and that's a crying shame because he's a very talented person. He's working. God bless him. Yeah, he's working. Yeah. One would hope that he would continue. But yeah, you go around the circle. Terribly upset. Very unhappy people. One angry guy. Upset, unhappy teenagers trying to out-emote each other. And, and I knew in my head, like, okay, we got outclassed. Sometimes that happens. I just said we did the best we could. We have to move on to the next thing. Because I wanted someone... <laughs> and did everyone in the circle turn around and look at you, fucking weirdo? Without saying it, yes. And I, I said it because I, I wanted someone to say it to me because I just... I had an idea that this wasn't the end of the road for me. And then, you know, got through Pippin, graduated, left, went to college, decided, okay, I am done with the theater. I'm going to go into radio, television, motion pictures. Right. What would you major? That it was called radio television. Oh, okay. Picture. It is, you know, that department ended up getting. Eaten. Where were you? University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, also known as Carolina. That's where I was. You know, Tar Heels, Michael Jordan. That moment. That's where. Oh I was. yeah, that that was actually that time, wasn't it? Yes, it was. He hit me with a snowball. Brush with greatness. That was my brush with greatness. Like, <laughs> it snowed one day. 
you know, it was two frat houses across the street with each other. They were just, and my dorm was nearby. I walked by. It's like, oh, this looks like fun. We just started hauling snowballs at each other. And then this very tall, bald, black gentleman comes up and, like, really throws one. And it hits me in the left shoulder. And I'm thinking, ow. And he'd be good at baseball. Well, you would float. Exactly. Yeah, I went there. I'm, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to study film. I'm going to do film things. It's not going to be theater. It's going to be different. And, you know, I, I learned theory and I, I never got my hands in a class on actually creating something. There was this thing that was starting there called student television. And I learned how to shoot and edit three quarter inch video, but I, I didn't really have a strong idea of what it was I wanted out of that experience. I'm grateful I got to touch the equipment. And I was, again, amongst people who knew Hitchcock's movies frame by frame. And I was just thinking, oh, if you analyze that too hard, you take all the fun out of it. This isn't. And those people ended up going to Los Angeles and having careers in television production. And I honor and salute them. I just couldn't quite get that together to do the same thing. And I felt real bad about it for a very long time. I knew I wanted to do something. I wasn't quite sure what it was. Everything that I'd tried thus far to that point hadn't quite worked. I just didn't get it. I graduate from college. I come home to my parents' house. I spend almost two years there, not one and three quarters. I worked at a video store and met many people who also wanted to do the same thing. Some of them did and some of them didn't. The only other thing I truly knew was like, I want to be in New York City. When did that start? probably maybe my sophomore year of college. I was reading a lot of Village Voice and Paper Magazine and Edie and American Biography. Um, I was just like, I want to go to New York City and become a Warhol person. Like, mm, no, I wasn't rich enough. I wasn't cute enough. That some bitch died before I even got there. So that- A that, little rude. Yeah, how dare he? But I did come to New York. And I kind of fumfered around for about seven, eight years. I didn't quite know what I was doing. And then I finally like bit the bullet and said, no, 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 I'm going to do stand-up comedy because I had a, a friend of mine took a class at Stand Up New York. Okay, fine. I don't know what I'm doing. I think I'm funny. I'm not cute enough to be an actress. I've met actors. I don't want anything to do with that. I've taken an improv class. I've just found out the entire theater was run by Scientologists. Maybe we'll do this instead. It seems safer. Anything seems safer than improv taught by Scientologists. Yes. So fine. Let's get going. Let's get into the club. Let's do the thing. And it turned out to be kind of fun. And I kind of liked it. What I didn't like was the fact that I had to do bringer shows there to be even thought, you know, that you had to crawl into the basement like it was the hull of the ship and pull the oars and be a slave to the club owner. And I did not like that at all. I just, no, I just. And, you know, again, it comes down to, to uh, you know, the art versus the shit you got to do to do your art. Yeah. If everybody could just make it easy. Well, if it was easy, everybody'd do it. And they could do it. They all wouldn't be good, but they could do it. As I've gone along, I think everybody should try stand-up comedy. I think everybody should get five minutes of material up, get behind a mic, deal with an audience of your peers. And then the next time you go to a comedy show, the next time you have the urge to start criticizing or heckling, shut up and remember yeah. how hard it is because it's hard. 
So I did this stand-up comedy class, and I did a couple of bringer shows. I wasn't crazy about it. And one of the people that did the class... Where did you do the bringer shows at? Probably. Stand-up New York, New York Comedy Club, Comedy Cellar, Caroline's. Yeah, I did that. I'm not proud of myself for doing that at all. I am quite... Actually, I'm quite unhappy with myself for having done that. But I did it. And one of the people I met in the comedy class told me about this place called Surf Reality that had always had an open mic. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go check it out. I'll sit, I'll watch. Now, when you went to Surf Reality for the first time, did you know what you were heading to? I hadn't a clue. I had no idea, period. But it was very exciting because I was watching people do stuff that I didn't see at the clubs. It was, <laughs> there was women and there were people doing all, not just stand up. They called it performance art. They called it poetry. They called it, I don't even know if anybody called it sketch, but it was just things from people I hadn't seen, from people... I would not know unless I was sitting in this pot smoke filled loft watching them work everything out in front of me. I was like, okay, this is where I belong with these people because they're talking about everything. In the comedy class, we like, no, you shouldn't curse and you know, you're going to alienate the audience and you need to find something more universal. And just in the class, they were training us how to be club comedians who had more options than a late night show which i get it i understand that it makes sense and, and time timeline wise it's probably around the end of the comedy club boom so it's kind of like still attaching oh, to that the boom it came and went this is 1997 this oh okay yeah yeah, 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 yeah. the boom is long gone and there's this thing they call alterna comedy coming and that's where i saw a lot of people doing what they told us was alternative comedy which nowadays is just comedy but well, you know, their, their alternative rooms never called themselves alternative rooms. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. It's just someone had to slap a label on it. And, like, it's just people getting together to do the work in a different place. And I thought I was a stand-up comic. I thought I was telling jokes. I thought I was amusing people here and there, except I was talking more than all the other comics. I didn't have set-up, pause, punchline, pause. I didn't do that because I had so many other ideas that I had to get into the one sentence and they had to understand that it was a whole thing and I'm like okay so maybe I'm not a stand-up comic maybe that's not who I am we go to surf reality and we go to collective unconscious and they tell us about oh there's a lot happening at Luna Lounge but it's not and and that kind of scared me off because like it was a book show and these were people that were on television and oh they're going right. to be so much better than us and, and you know we're just going to sit there and watch and we're not going to get to do anything it's not going to make me any better I'm not going to go there which was stupid I could have learned something but I liked being in my own little surf collective orbit with the people that I like being with and that's what I like doing and that's how I started to get a show together called Night of a Thousand Jennifers because I wasn't the only Jennifer doing comedy so we did that a couple of times at Surf Reality and some... What did that show comprise? Seven women named Jennifer doing stand-up with me doing like an opening slide presentation. I didn't even do a PowerPoint, I used an overhead projector, that's how long ago it was. <laughs> We did it at Surf Reality. I met this woman whose stage name was Jennifer Giles. And she booked, oh, in Chelsea, the comedy club in Chelsea. Hey, Gotham? Yes. Yeah. And she booked Gotham and she thought it was really cool and she wanted to get part of it. And we're doing something for New York Comedy Club. Why don't you come on? Let's go do this. So I got together. I got her all my people. We did it. 
And I didn't know what I was getting into. I just thought, okay, we're just going to do the show and everything's going to be cool. It's just going to be the way it was. And like, nope, nope. She had ideas. Some of them are good. Some of them I didn't agree with. And we did a couple of them at Gotham. And I was grateful to have had the opportunity. I was grateful to get the publicity and the attention. That was not the right thing for me to be doing. Mm -hmm. It just, I was not a producer. I wasn't as good a stand-up. It just was not a good fit for me. And, you know, and afterwards I felt like I'd failed. I didn't advocate. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I just like, no, I was not in the right place at the right time with that. And I produced some other shows at Surf and Collective. And this is sometime in the early aughts. And surf reality the landlord came and jacked up like think tripled the rate rent yeah. and they had to go and collective unconscious wasn't too long after it because somebody bought the building and then they kicked them out and they you know ended up knocking down the building i think it's still a vacant lot there i don't know if they've built a high-rise on it yet or what yeah it, yeah we watched our dreams die we watched our dreams and our safe spaces die and evaporate and, in front and when of this us happened you, you you're like decently immersed in this whole scene by yep, that point right i sure am and i'll say that i was responsible because i just stayed where i was i you know i did not move ahead parts of me died that's what happened I got stuck in one place. I didn't quite know how to get out. And then my good friend Michelle Carlo is doing stories with this organization called The Moth. And they have these things called story slams. And you just come and it's like a poetry slam. And you should try it. And I did. It wasn't easy. It was appealing. I wanted to do well there. And it was not easy. And I watched a lot of other people work very, very hard. And they all came to different levels of skills. The moth started to become a thing kind of simultaneous. Yeah. As, with when as, that was as one as as one door was closing, another door was opening. Yeah. And it but but they were such different animals. Yes. You know, very they were not interchangeable and they were nope. not for uh -uh. everybody. No. The moth was the first one. The Moth was the first storytelling organization, and it all started with them. And then... And they were initially doing it out of the New Yorican, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And they expanded, and they would do all five of the boroughs. I think that, yeah, they even did shows in Staten Island a couple of nights. And then it burgeoned, and they did shows in Los Angeles. They're a nonprofit organization, and they have a budget, and they get grants, and they became the thing that is now sponsored by NPR, broadcast online and through NPR's network, and they have built something real and well-established. I never did well with that, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. I was happy in surf reality and collective unconscious. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like when you first really clued into the surf collective vibe it was in some ways like when you first connected with drama club mm -hmm. it just sounds like you, you didn't feel that same sort of connection whatever you liked or didn't like about it with the storytelling scene at that point i had expectations of myself that weren't met i just thought oh i'm just gonna go and it's gonna be like an open mic and it's like no it wasn't it was a competition it was people from other places that i hadn't been yet these People were different. These people had jobs. These people were writers. Some of them worked in media and some of them, 
it was a different mindset. Plus, I'd aged some. I'm here in my 40s, and like this is a whole different group of humans. I like the style. I like the form. I like the fact that you get to express yourself. I like the fact you're given five minutes, and you got to tell something compelling, and you got to have a beginning, middle, and an end, and you have to take an audience with you, and you have to do some work, and it's good, and it's challenging, but it wasn't quite what I wanted. It wasn't quite it. As a nonprofit organization, they grew, they blossomed, they burgeoned, and then somebody else comes up, and there comes Kevin Allison with Risk, mm. and then here comes the Story Collider, and then here comes uh, this woman named Don Frazier who did a show called Barbershop Stories. I'll say it right out front. Let's just say the moth was a certain hue and a certain section of the population, and Don's Barbershop Stories and other people coming up, and Kevin featured queer stories, and you just... There was a lot more out there, and you didn't always have to shove it into five minutes that fit a theme that three groups of three people in an audience could tell you whether you were good or not. Yeah. You could go do different things in different places with different people and talk about different subjects that may or may not get on NPR. It doesn't kind of matter, but you can get out there. And I became a better storyteller once I expanded, once mm -hmm. I went to different places and saw different things. Depending on, on the person, depending on the circle, uh, sometimes I get, and I understand it, but sometimes people I will meet uh, think of me as being a storytelling person or whatever. What I always like to say is that I spend lots and lots of time traveling through the area. I know how to get around. I don't need to use a guidebook. I can speak the language, but I also feel like that's still where I visit. It's not where I live. Although I can speak the language, I always feel like my accent is probably showing. So I say all of this is a preference to, I think there may be a comparison, like, for example, in terms of stand-up, like the mainstream clubs. There was a certain formula, and there was a certain, as you say, hue associated with much of it. A lot of the quote-unquote alternative scene kind of grew as a response to that. And I'm thinking in some of the shows you're talking about now, similarly grew as a response to the moth and like institutions, not just toss it all on the moth. No, I work at nonprofit. I also know how hard it is to sustain an organization, to expand, to grow, to maintain. I'm not their executive director. I don't know how they do that. Great. Go ahead and do that. That's not the only place I want to go. It's not the only thing I want to see. There's a lot of things to see. And actually, for, for me personally, what, what I always find, because I, I, there are things I enjoy about all of these. You know, I'm certainly not ever meaning to uh, you know, throw stones at the, the mainstream comedy clubs or the malls. Like I've had a great time at all these places, and I enjoy the work. A lot of times I find that from my own personal taste, and I hope this is reflected in, in the no-name shows that we produce, is that it's more interesting to me when you, you, you've got like a palette that in incorporates all of that in the same place. I would love to see more places where all these different voices can be regularly seen in the same place. Yeah, the moth has expanded. They have included people other than what we're used to seeing. I don't know. I look at it like grocery shopping. You have to go to more than one place to get what you need. I'm grateful we have more than one place to go. 
I would keep going to all those different places and really want to see more from different parts. Sometimes you just want to go to the grocery store with the Utz potato chips. Maybe you don't want anybody <laughs> else's potato chips at that moment. Right, right, right. And some days you want the Cape Cods and you have to go someplace else to get them then. Human experience is vast and confusing. Everybody knows how to be an awkward teenager, right? Everybody knows how to fall in love or to have desire. Everybody knows how to be sad when a loved one passes away. Everybody knows how to have their heart broken. I mean, you just have to try to pick the moment in your own experience that you know other people know, and you have to try not to squeeze it into a structure. But you also have to have a plot. You have to be done in six to eight minutes. Go! <laughs> pressure, pressure! Yeah, and, and get out there and fail, friends. That's what I can tell you. Get Just get out there fall on your face so you can pick yourself up so you can sort of figure out what you did and didn't do and what you could do better next time. And please do not have a rigid idea of what in, in three months I will be a Moth Grand Slam winner. Then, of course, I will end up on risk and, and tell a story about some bizarre sexual thing that happened to me. And then, you know, after that, I'll get a book contract and then I can segue into a feature film built on my entire life. And trust <laughs> me, I'm saying that because I've had those thoughts. I thought that what the structure was. Boy, was I wrong. So far. So far. So who's to say? Who's to say? <laughs> However, and this is something I have to work on real hard within myself, and I'm sure anybody who's ever gotten on stage and stood in front of a microphone and got the rush from the audience and then got off and like, okay, now what do I do? Mm. Now what do you do? You keep doing it. You tell more stories. You have more stories in your back pocket. Should you really, really need one? Should you, an opportunity come up? You, you hustle. You meet people. You talk to them. You stop thinking that okay, I'm not perfect, I'm not fit for human consumption. Like, who? No, you're not perfect. You're still fit for human <laughs> consumption. And you still have to work. Yeah. Well, that, that's one thing I think, regardless of the genre or, or the specific discipline, there should no substitute for getting out there and doing it again and again and again. You, know, you talk about the failure. You can only do the failure and you can only do the success that comes from failure if you're out there regularly failing, succeeding, whatever. And I think that's a thing that a lot of, like, like no, we, we've got a couple of young folks who've kind of grown up with the no-name shows at Word Up who are, are trying to stand up. It's fun watching them hit the mics and the joys and the horrifying, horrifying deaths that occur when one embarks on such a path. When they choose to speak to me about it, I always try and emphasize it's like, yeah, when you get devastated, you feel like you don't want to go back out there and get your ass kicked again. But the only way you can get past there is by going out there and I guess developing ass calluses or something so that you don't feel it when you get kicked. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I think it's a horrible analogy, but I'm just saying, you know, it's yeah. it, there's no substitute for going out right. there repeatedly and you can't get anywhere no matter what your natural ability is. Do not sit home and post shit on Instagram and get all the loves and all that stuff and think that you're already a performer because you're not. If you're not doing it in front of real people, it's not happening. And yes, we all need social media to promote ourselves. I get that. That's not where you perform. You do it in a room with other people. There is an art and a value to entertaining via social media. That's a different set of skills. It's yep. a different format. 
and it doesn't ensure that you can do it elsewhere. It can enhance yeah. or give you another trick in your bag. Getting a following is important. That way those people know where you're performing and can go see you there. And you can entertain people on multitudes of platforms. The most consistent thing is to be in front of other humans. It just is. That's why all those cave folk gathered around the fire and one guy got the stick and he got to tell the story and then another person got to... And now that we're not cave people anymore, they let women and non-white people do it too. So that's awesome. So you start looking in the world of the moth and story shows, you know, things that you liked about it, things you didn't like about it. So if I'm remembering, there was a point you stepped back a little bit, right? Yeah. I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to do something that I didn't believe I could do. Mm -hmm. And I listened to my own bad publicity and I believed it for a while. And because I had some very big expectations of myself that I was just too scared to work on, I, I, I talked myself out of it. Mm -hmm. I did talk myself out of it. And that sucked. Don't do that. Really, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Don't talk yourself out of doing something you know you do love. Do talk yourself into believing, yes, you do have to work at it. And if you don't, your love will just be unto you. You have to love more than how you feel when you're doing it. You have to love how the other people feel when they listen to you do it. You have to not see the audience as the enemy or your therapist. You have to... Oh, please put that on a plaque and hang it in every club in the planet. I will. Uh <laughs> Wait, wait, but so I want to ask you though, but you, you say, you know, you're talking about doing that thing you love. Now for you at that point, it is it a thing that you love storytelling per se or performing in general or both? I loved performing. I loved making people laugh. I loved having more than just set up punchline, punchline, pause mm -hmm. to do it in. I like telling stories that are funny. I like having jokes inside a story that the audience relates to, that there's a beginning, middle, and an end, and there's some laughs along the way. That's what I like the best. That's what I feel like right now I'm getting much better at. I tried to do it all jokes. I tried to tell sad, poignant stories that really were therapy sessions, and those audiences really... I should have paid all of them by the end of it. Oh, I, I, didn't, I made no money. They, those poor sods paid like seven bucks to get in. I owed each one of them $135. Yeah, I used the audience as my therapist, and that's not why they're there. That was not part of the social contract they signed. I am now trying to rectify that. I'm trying to... I have a certain amount of material I work with. I do have to come up with new things. I do have to, there are parts of my life that I haven't talked about yet that I'm, you know, some of it I'm ready to, some of it I'm not. Everything that ever happened to me is not for them. Some things are, some, the things that they, they can understand and can follow with and don't have to be me to know that it was good. You are performing in general a bit more now these days, correct? I am. And do you at this point have any specific goals or things that you're working toward? I would like to do more than 10 minutes. I would like to do maybe 15 to 20 minutes about me growing up in North Carolina. I would like, maybe I would like to turn that into a, a real one-person show. I would like to do that. I would like to see where that gets me. I would love to, I would love to be on risk. There, I said it out to the universe. I know. I'm, 
not like anybody's listening, but okay. I would like to get something together I could take to risk that I could really grow with. I would like, I would like to write a memoir too. I really mm. would. I would love to write about going to high school in North Carolina and being in drama club and trying to negotiate being a Yankee plus a Jew in Greensboro in 1980. I would love to do that. That's what I want. Their universe, you and everybody who listens to the No Name podcast now knows what I want. So you can all turn around and harass me and ask me why I'm not doing it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Well, all right. So we'll be fielding the, the, the calls and letters from the fan. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if he feels motivated to write a call that day. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You know, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> One thing I love about doing this podcast is everybody's uh, cliche phrase is, you know, journey is different. But I, I, I really like that so many of the people we've had on are people whose stories really aren't at all like the person I spoke to last month or what have you. What I'm awkwardly going towards, I, re I realize maybe towards the end of the day, because I wonder what what's coming up next for you and what are you shooting to do next? I, you just gave us your big picture, the, the memoir, the solo show, whatever. Immediately what's coming up and what would you like to come up immediately? Um, immediately what's coming up on July 19th, I'm at QED with, on the Trev SD Variety Store. He's somebody I met at, at Surf Reality. He's written great books about show business. He's going to come out with a book about variety television. I don't know what the title of it is. He's written No Applause, Just Throw right, Money. Yeah. I love that book. It's yeah. so good. It's so comprehensive about vaudeville, a subject you could go on so many tangents. I love his blog. I think he's swell. He thinks I'm swell enough to put on his show. That's awesome. I'm down with that. So I'm doing a variety show with him. That's all that's on the calendar coming up for this moment, but... And I, I realize the irony of asking you all of this, and you're, you're, you're promoting a, a... You're mentioning a show that will have already passed when right. this aired. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, well, it, before you got here, we were recording an intro uh, for another upcoming episode, and I did the same thing on my own fucking podcast, <laughs> so... Uh, so there'll be another take on that. See, but that, that's relatable, Eric. <laughs> I'm trying to learn from my guest uh, that I might find my path. And, and actually, I have to say, you know, uh, in, in the roughly year pre-pandemic were our storyteller in residence at Word Up Bookshop, which translated into you were doing a spot at our show once a month when we were weekly. And I would like to resume that once we go back to weekly. We're kind of easing our way back into... Understood, Eric. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, for a, a long list of reasons or whatever, but I, I have really enjoyed the fact that you have come through a few times, even though we've been, you know, uh, monthly. It, it's good, and, and since you're talking about, you know, the, the work that you've been putting into it, I just want to say... Uh, for the record, the the work shows you're you're a different storyteller now than you were when uh, Michelle first invited you to be a guest on our thing. I think it may have even been in the old location of the bookshop. It certainly was a while back, and it was that was why I extended the invite to you to uh, be our storyteller in residence, just because I saw you were putting more work in. 
and I saw the work paying off and I like we're nothing if we're not a place for artists to work out their stuff or whatever and it was very, it, it's been very gratifying uh, and just, well fuck gratifying it's just been very entertaining and enjoyable to see uh, you continuing to work and, and I'm glad that you're you're doing that elsewhere as well if people want to follow you and what's going on with you, how can people track you down in a non-threatening way? Friend me on Facebook. I'm old. I stick with Facebook. I do have an Instagram. I have to fiddle with it. I, it got busted into and I got a at Glickgen, G-L-I-C-K-J-E-N, at Instagram, Jennifer Glick on Facebook. I might even have to make a fan page. Oh dear. How about that? But yeah. Whatever it is, I want other people to come see me and watch me do things. I put it up on those two particular platforms. Thanks for chatting with us, Jen. It is good talking with you, and I really look forward to seeing your continued work. Thank you so very much. I am so pleased to be your guest. Oh, man, that was our conversation with Jennifer Glick. Really do keep an eye out for her, find out when, where she's going to be telling her stories, spinning her tale. Always a good time with Jen Glick. She's just a fun human and lovely storyteller. I want to thank you guys all for hanging out with us today. Thanks for coming to play with us. These things happen with the help of amazing people. Most amazing, indeed, is our producer and chief sound engineer, Gary Hardcastle. Also, additional sound engineering from Miles Mix Appeal Blue Spruce. Introductory and closing music is written and performed by King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. A little nod of the baseball cap to our production assistants. That would be Stanley Recio and Jeremy Poyo. And thanks to each and every one of you. Thanks to our sponsor, the uh, historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Hoping to get there this summer. As always, we like to leave you with a little music. Uh, one of our recent guests with the one and only Brown Furlow is going to be celebrating a milestone birthday soon. And this is a cut from his wonderful CD. The CD is called Young Man in a Hurry. And this cut is St. James Infirmary Blues. Until next time, take good care of yourselves. My name is Eric Vetter. I love you all.
She's gone She's gone